Hi, Creative. It's Lauren here. I just want to remind you that if you love the podcast, the best way to support the show is by leaving it a rating and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And uh, another great way to support the show is by sharing it with a friend or posting about it on social media. If you do post it on social media, tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. And remember to tag the guests too so they can also share. Okay, now let's get to the show. Picture this. You have a huge problem. You're trying to figure out how to solve it. Do you add something to the situation to find a solution? Or do you take something away? Probably add. Did you know that we have an instinctive evolutionary tendency to add? Stressed? Add a meditation routine to your schedule. Kids aren't behaving? Add incentives for good behavior. Improving a song? Add another line. But what we often forget is that subtraction is an option and it's a damn good one. Today's guest shows us how subtraction can help you get to the root of a problem, find simple solutions, remove temptation, and improve your creative process. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, public speaker, actor, and creative coach. And this show is meant to give you tools to claim the word creative, take fear out of the driver's seat, and love yourself enough to pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. On the show, we explore the creative process and journey, mental health, self-development, spirituality, and everything it means to be a human and become more human. Today's guest is Dr. Lighty Klotz. He's a professional soccer player turned scientist, engineer, professor, and author. His research has appeared in major publications, including Nature and Science. He's written for popular outlets, including the Washington Post, Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and The Behavioral Scientist. And most notably, perhaps, he authored a game-changing book called Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. This book touches on an essential tool for the creative process that we will discuss in depth today. I wanted to have Lighty on the show because he is someone who has found an abundance of creativity in what you'd normally think of as a traditional field, a professor and an engineer. And as I mentioned, subtraction is a vital part of the creative process. Also, and maybe most importantly for me, because subtraction is something I deeply need right now. I'm on a mission to simplify my life in order to get to the bigger answers and honestly just to find a little bit more peace and joy. And I know a lot of you out there are on that path too. Today, Lighty is going to therapize us and share some great, simple tools to help. Think of him as a Marie Kondo for your entire life. If you're struggling on your path to make space for creativity and the things that bring you joy and peace, then this episode is for you. Now here he is, Dr. Lighty Klotz. Lighty, thank you so much for being on the show. This conversation could not have been timed better. So I'm really, really grateful you're here. Thanks, Lauren. I'm, I'm excited to talk. Uh, this is a, a little bit different than the people that I normally get to talk to. You know, how do you apply this to business or whatever? And I think of myself as a creative. So I like talking about it from this angle, too. Yeah, you have such an interesting path. I mean, and I definitely want to get into the fact that you were a soccer star for a good portion <laughs> of your life, then transitioned into engineering and academia. And now you're, you're just becoming this incredible author and I think speaker and all kinds of things. So you've got a great creative path to speak from. But I'm a, I'm a little concerned because I'm like, this might turn into a therapy session <laughs> because a lot of what you talk about hits home so deeply for me. And it's something that I'm really coming up against. Like, I feel like I'm having an identity crisis right now because I'm realizing how much I've stacked into my life and how deeply unsustainable it is, but how I don't know how to subtract. Uh -huh. And so it's very wonderful that I have a human on the show right now that wrote a book called Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, it could be therapy for me, too, because I don't, uh, I, I, I definitely overlook it in a lot of ways in my life, too. Yeah, and I liked how open you were about that in the book. Like you even talked about how you, your wife was like, you're gonna get found out because we put an addition on our house. You know, I, I think that yeah. all the best teachers are the ones that can admit to their which I don't even think it's a hypocrisy, but their hypocrisies. Like I started the show because I think I need to unleash my inner creative more truly. And so like I'm on this mission to teach myself how to like not buy in so much to what society tells us is valuable and go more toward the soul. Mm -hmm. um, so I love that you do that too. And I think it makes you a great teacher. 
Thank you. Of course. Yeah, I've I've heard for teaching that you you need to be wrong some of the time, but not not too much. Then you shouldn't be teaching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If if you are wrong too often, I think people stop believing you. But if you never admit when you're wrong, they also stop believing you. So it's right. like you said, because I like that you also say you're not against adding. But before we go too deep into okay. that. Yeah. Let's talk about what we're talking about. So you came to the conclusion that most people, when they're trying to solve a problem, they add something on. But really, that thinking is flawed because sometimes taking something away is the best solution. Mm -hmm. So can you share how you came to that conclusion and why that is? Yeah, I'll, I'll share what's been called the apocryphal story. But then I looked up what apocryphal meant and I'm like, that means not true. And this is actually a true story. <laughs> but um, I was... I mean, so this this actually illustrates the thinking concept really clearly. Um, I was playing Legos with my son, who was three at the time, and we we're using these Duplo blocks. Uh, I've got a replica here, so I'll show Lauren. But the um, we we're building a bridge, and it wasn't level, and so I, I tried to level the bridge by adding a block to the shorter column. Uh, before I could do that, my son had removed a block from the longer column, and we since did a ton of, of research on this. And then, uh, you know, they got published in Nature and what was uh, on the cover of Nature, which has never happened to me before and will never happen to me again. And for those that don't know, Nature's a scientific book magazine. Yeah, it's like the pinnacle of science publishing. Um, so it's a, it's a big deal for nerds like me. Um, and <laughs> So we did enough research after the Lego study to get there, but the, the cognitive process is really similar to what happened to me in that moment, which is that we were presented with something that we want to try to make better. We want to try to improve. We want to take from how it is to how we want it to be. Um, that's one of the ways I think of creativity. And our first instinct is to think, what can we add? To this thing. And oftentimes it's not really a problem that we have these first instincts. I mean, we, we have all kinds of first thoughts, but what can happen is that we add, like I would have done in that moment with the bridge and then move on before considering whether subtracting might be an even better option. So that's like the new thing here is that this discovery that our, our first thought is what we can add. And then there are tons of other reasons why we may not subtract as well, but that's that also illustrates what we're talking about. Yeah. Like why, why do our brains so desperately want to go into addition mode? I know there's millions of reasons, but could you go through a few of them? Yeah. Well, yeah. Perfect. Uh, thank you for saying there's millions of reasons. It gets me off the hook uh, of <laughs> providing that caveat and all of these reasons work together. Right. But if you, so if you look at evolutionary reasons, right, we're, we're wired to acquire things. I mean, stockpiling a bunch of food is a, a helpful adaptive behavior for when times get lean, you'll be able to more likely to, you know, survive through that and pass down your genes. Um, the, another biological one that I think is really, I find really relevant to my creative work. And I think it'll probably ring true with your listeners too, is this notion of competence. And so this is just as it sounds that we want to show that we're competent. We want to show that we're affecting change in the world. And I wasn't surprised that competence was kind of this pro adding force, but I was surprised how biological it is. Um, and so you, the example I use in the book are, are bower birds. These are the, uh, the male bird builds a ceremonial nest. And then the females come around and look and decide which male to mate with based on how much they like the nest. And then the female bird goes and builds a nest to raise the young. So there's no shelter purpose for this thing that the male spent all this time building. The, the purpose is to show that this, the bird that built the nest can effectively interact with the world. And that means that, you know, that's a, a good indicator that their, their genes might be good for, for other activities. Um, and this isn't limited to males or females, but it's the bowerbird example happened to be uh, <laughs> split up that way. So, so we all share this desire to display competence to show that we can effectively interact with the world. And it's easier to show competence by adding, whether it's physical things or whether it's task completion. That's one that I struggle with a lot. I mean, I want to show people around me that I'm, I'm doing a good job and it's a heck of a lot easier to do that, to show up at the meeting. Even if you're a redundant person in the meeting, you're, you're at least showing you're doing something. Yeah. I wonder how much is wrapped up in worthiness. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think the, 
that's totally wrapped up with with the competence. And so these are situations, you know, like in in writing, for example, or even podcasting. I mean, you'll I imagine you'll edit this down from the six hour interview we're doing, right? To uh, <laughs> no, but, the, but in writing, it's really hard to get rid of my own words, right? It's like oh, I spent so much time on this, and it it shows that I did something, and it may not serve the. The, the general purpose of what I'm trying to communicate, but it's, it's, it becomes hard. You want to show your worthiness and show your competence. Yeah, that's so true. And it's such a great point because a lot of times when I'm working with my producer, I mean, I produced the show solo for years and there's a great part that you talk about in the book where you're like, if you can hire it out, it could add a lot to your life. So like paying to subtract something, yeah, paying true. to subtract editing the show made my life so much better. And actually increased the effectiveness of the show because we started reaching more people. So that's very interesting. But I always say to her, I go, listen to this. Like, if you didn't know me, didn't care about me, would you still care about the content? Right. And I think that's such an important thing to do. Like, if we if we are in the editor position ever with our own creative lives and trying to subtract, think about if you didn't know you and you didn't care about you, would you want to read that or would you subtract it? Uh, that's super interesting. Because yeah, well, one of the points I make is like, if you hire an editor, then they're like, they're this neutral third party that isn't vested in the work. But now that you're friends with your editor, <laughs> you're like, you're right. They're essentially you, right? So they're, yeah, she's my proxy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's really, really fascinating. But yeah, I think like kind of, and that's a way you can do it with your own work too, right? Is like, okay, pretend you're you're somebody totally different um, and take that detached view and could help you subtract more. Yeah. So there's like talking about the creativity part of this, there was something I loved. I read, uh, I think it was, I don't remember. It was one of the articles that you wrote and mm -hmm. you talked about how you had people look at like a very complicated recipe versus experimenting with a grilled cheese. Yeah. And that really simplified how this plays into creativity for me, because when it's a complicated recipe, there is no room for you to experiment, to try things. You just have to follow it to a T because otherwise it's going to go to hell. But when mm. it's a grilled cheese, you can throw in a little jam. You can change up the cheese. That's you can use two different slices of bread. Like, yeah. It just made me think, like, when you simplify, you actually give yourself the ability to be more creative. And I'm curious how you see uh, simplifying or subtracting playing into the creative process. Oh, yeah. I, this is, again, why I was so excited to do this. We never get to talk about the grilled cheese and the um, the soup recipe studies, which actually got put into nature. Um, there, there is like an appendix, but still, it's it's awesome that they're in there. But I love that that notion of subtracting as a way to create options, right? I mean, that's something that I talk about in the book as it relates to like leaving a better planet for our children. Um, but I think it totally applies to creativity too, right? If you if you take something away, you're leaving options for your creative self. You're also leaving options for the audience. Um, you might like this. I talked to uh, Kelly Leonard. He's the director of Second City, um, the improv group. And he, yeah. he was talking about subtraction in the context of trying to take away some of what the performers are doing and then like bringing... That, that made the audience participation that much better and made the show that much better. But it wouldn't have happened if you tried to kind of totally script everything that the, that the performer was doing. So yeah, I, I, love, I hadn't thought about it in that way, but I, I totally agree that the, as a kind of platform for creativity, right? You, you take away to remove things and gain options. Yeah, it made me think about, so often I try to fill every space because I think more is better. Mm -hmm. And it made me think about what if I just had a few things and then I got to color those things in? How would my life look if it was like that mm -hmm. instead of stacking it like a Tetris yeah. or a Lego? And you mean things as in um, activities that you're doing or is it literally like the... everything? I think it's just this is my pattern. You know, yeah. it's, it's just it's really interesting that we're talking right now because I was thinking about it I've been thinking about it nonstop for like the past month, like how, because when I look back to the happiest year of my life in the past five years, it was 2018 and I was doing the least, you right. know, I was working, I work as a producer and I, so I have a, a full-time job as a producer as before I started this podcast. And I love this podcast, by the way, like it's, it's not about that, but just there's too much going on. So I was doing that, just the producing job. And then I was just working on my album. I had, was putting out an EP and I would go on long walks and my life was just like simple. Yeah. 
And there was time for ideas to come. And I thought of this podcast in that time. And, you know, there was so much. And it makes me think, you talk about, you know, how subtracting isn't necessarily easier. Like, sometimes it takes more effort to subtract. Like, for instance, if I just put this podcast out the way it is and didn't do any editing, it would be less effort but it wouldn't be as effective out in the world. Right. Or I wouldn't enjoy it as much, you know? So I've been thinking about that. Like, what if even right now I subtracted everything from my life that wasn't necessary and then just allowed and saw what that could bring in, you know? Like, didn't fill it up. Right. Didn't subtract and then instantly add. Left the space. Yeah. I mean, it's... And that would be different than kind of subtracting in the service of adding. You know that something's eventually going to come back there, but your initial subtraction is just to be like, okay, let's go back to this point. And if if I have the space, I I know I'll have confidence that you know something will fill it up, something valuable will yeah. will fill it up. Um, I was listening to your last episode about you know kind of taking breaks, and uh, I think of myself as taking a little bit of a break right now, like after writing the book and, and kind of sharing it, and just kind of taking things in and trying to figure out what's next, but also kind of trying to let what's next come a little bit too. It's like, don't, don't work too hard trying to figure out exactly what the next thing is. Um, But I I just think that's so true, right? Because if you, if you're just totally packed with, with things that that's never going to, never going to happen. And boy, what a a tragedy that would be just for your, um, missing out on your favorite year of the last five years, but also missing out on, you know, this, the societal benefit from whatever it would be that you would create if you, if you had that free space. Yeah. And I think that brings me to this idea that subtracting takes courage. I think, you know, maybe not if you're just subtracting one or two, but like subtracting big things from your life, that takes courage. I think that idea can be terrifying for people, which is why they avoid it and then add. They're like, oh, I'm so stressed. I'll just meditate 10 minutes a day and then I won't be as stretched. You know, that might be true. I'll add meditation. Right. But it might also be helpful to take out the fact that you're working all day and then all night, you know? Yeah. But how can we get the courage? How do we build up that courage to start subtracting these bigger entities from our life? I think... um... Uh, first recognizing it right i think it's you're hitting on the main points of the of what's going on here is that this is hard right it's hard to think of it's hard to follow through with and it's emotionally hard and it you know it takes courage these are all things that are harder and so often when you know minimalism and less you, it's kind of like oh that's easy that should be easy and when we think it's easy then we have no chance of achieving this kind of good form of less the, or this other form of less that's beyond more so one recognizing it i think uh and then in terms of following through i think it's really important to have a vision of what this future state looks like right because it's really easy to get focused on the the specific things that you're taking away um so it's like okay now i'm not going to do this uh i'm not going to go to these meetings and there's there's part of the meetings that i like and part there's somewhat valuable and so it's like if it's just that decision in in isolation it it becomes hard to do. But then when you think about, okay, it's not that I'm not going to the meetings, it's that I'm using these two hours on Wednesday afternoon for, you know, deep thinking or or whatever you want to use it for you, like paint this vision of what this future state is going to look like. And then that gets you focused on the the improvement, you know, because what we're talking about here is subtracting to make things better. And if you focus on the individual subtractions, that's hard. But if you focus on the the final improvement that can can help you get there. I mean, Marie Kondo does this brilliantly in her, her tidying stuff. She talks about, you know, visualize the the clean room. Um, and she's not as she's not focused on the specific things that you're you're getting rid of. Yeah. So I was gonna ask you, how do you start building up the skill set to subtract? Like if you're a person who's chronically added your entire life in every area. Are there small ways you can start to subtract so you can build up your skill set? Yeah, I mean, the good news is listening to this podcast, you're you're already starting. So um, seriously, I mean, like one of the things we found in the research is having a reminder helps. And um, so we'd give people a reminder, hey, you can add or you can subtract. And of course, the reminder increased rates of subtracting, which seems obvious, but then the reminder didn't increase rates of adding. So mm. it, for our research, it showed that subtracting wasn't coming to mind adding was 
um, for everything else, the, the real world, it shows that reminders like this can be helpful in help having you think of it more. I'd also think about baking it into your process, right? So it's like, if whatever you're, you know, for me, it's I do a to do list. And how can I also build in stop doing so now I don't let myself do, do a to do list without an equal number of stop doings. Um, and you can think about that in all, you know, writing, I could think about that, right? I could force myself to say, okay, this is going to be a 2000 word piece. And if I add 500 words, I need to take away 500 words from somewhere else. So, and that, that ensures you don't um, overlook it. And so reminders, and then the other one is rules, right? So just saying like, look, if I add this two hour commitment to my life, I'm, I, I'm forcing myself to remove two hours from somewhere else. And that will help ensure you don't overlook it. Also help a little bit with the um, kind of courage and emotional angle of this that's hard to overcome because if it if it's a rule, then you have to do it this way. You're showing competence by, by subtracting um, and following the rule. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I love a, a good rule. I mean, the, my issue with rules is that then I follow them too much. You know, it's like I, I'm like, okay, so I just have to do this every day forever for the rest of my life and I'll be okay. Right. That's fine. Right. So I think that's why I like that you talk about you're not an evangelist really for either. You're like, let's do both and find our way to the middle. Mm -hmm. Because I think that when we get on extremes in either direction, that's when we get in this place of imbalance and either spinning our wheels or doing nothing. Yeah. And then I like that you talk about the difference between subtracting and not adding. Can you go into that? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm trying to think of what example, but I'll go to my go to my favorite example is of my friend Ben, who who is like a collaborator on this research. And it's just a super smart and thoughtful guy. Um, and he came to me about halfway into the research and he's like, Hey, I'm taking our research to to heart. We I installed a Nobel outside the office, and it's like, ha, no Nobel, ha ha ha. We're <laughs> scholars, and but um, they would ring the bell every time they didn't do something. And and Ben said, well, my department chair came to me, said, asked me to be on this committee, and I said, no, I didn't have time, and so I rang the Nobel, and I said, you know, congratulations, Ben, you you didn't add, <laughs> but you didn't actually take anything away, right? Your schedule is still as booked as it as it was before, and I think that's really important when it comes to time management, when it comes to, um, you know, creativity is that, uh, yes, not adding is a good way to ensure that you're not overwhelmed. But the, if you're already overwhelmed, not adding is not going to solve this problem. <laughs> You've got to <laughs> take things away. The other, and So that's my example with Ben. And then there's this classic example from the army where officers are given Speaking of rules, it's very tightly delineated what they have to do, like four hours on this thing, six hours on this thing. And they had so many things that they were required to do that it literally exceeded the number of hours that they had to do it in. And so it was forcing these officers to to cut corners. And then the recommendation in the report was to like exercise restraint in the propagation of requirements, which is again, is like, it's a not adding, it's not a it's not a subtracting. So it's an important conceptual distinction. I think both can be useful in certain cases, but let's not trick ourselves into thinking we're solving the problem just by, you know, not taking on new activities. Right. If you're already carrying too much weight, not adding more weight isn't going to help you not like have your knees give out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's a better example. Thanks a lot for making me look bad. <laughs> you're all well, together. We collaborated on that one. Yeah. And I love that you talk about these rules too, because I was reading your article in behavioralscientist.org. You said, too many rules and too much red tape can distract from the behaviors we're really hoping for. I feel like we see this a lot in corporate America. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we see this in our world. It was wild. You said there's 50% more rules now than there were 50? Or what was the number? Oh, it's insane. It's yeah. more than 17 times more federal regulations than there were in 1950. And so like the, the rate of growth of federal regulations exceeds the rate of growth of the stock market, um, for example. And it's just, you know, this, you can see this everywhere, right? It's, if you don't have any rules and regulations, it makes sense to add them. If you don't have any roads, if you don't have any like cool products, if you don't have any music, it makes sense to add all these things. But if eventually we, you get to a point where, you know, the more of this stuff you have, the, the, the greater the utility of taking away. And so the regulations, it's not just federal regulations. It's like in every organization. And, um, 
I think one that's where the rules I think are really helpful. My favorite is uh, just a simple rule where if, if somebody comes with a new policy, you say fine, but what are the two that you want to subtract, right? What are the two that you want to get rid of that are on the books that aren't serving us well anymore? And I think that kind of instills this mindset of, hey, you can add and subtract and it prevents this explosion of rules. And I'm not against rules, but yeah, it's like if you if you have these useless rules on the book, it makes all of the rules look bad and it distracts again from the the behaviors we're we're actually striving for. Yeah. And it's interesting because it makes me think of parenting too. I know you, you have two kids, right? Yeah. Yeah. A three and a seven-year-old? Yeah. The three-year-old from the Legos is now seven and then he has a three-year-old sister. So Aww, yeah. cuties. They're great. <laughs> so it makes me think about it in regard to parenting too, right? Because I do think parenting is extremely creative and a lot of creatives are parents. So there's a good tie in there. But <laughs> You know, you have too many rules for kids. You often see them rebelling against the rules and then the parents will double down on the rules, make more rules, and then the kids rebel even harder. But what if they tried subtracting some of the rules that the kids found most offensive and see what happens? Yeah. How do you find subtracting works in parenting? How do you use it? I mean, I spoke about my blind spots and I think this is my biggest one. I, I had a have a friend, uh, Yale Schoenbrunn, who um, she's like a parenting expert and I mean, she like very gently led me to it, but the, like the takeaway was, look, you're, you're failing to subtract in your parenting and because I care so much about it. Right. And it becomes, yeah. it becomes really hard. It's like, oh, I've been doing this thing for Ezra. That's my son's name. And um, now, now that he can like kick a soccer ball 20 miles an hour, maybe I don't need to put his shoes on for him, but it's still like, it's hard to think about um, what you might take away because you care so much. Uh, but the rules is a great example with the parenting. And I think it's not just that um, it's an overlooked option, but in a lot of ways, it can be the better option. And so like, you know, there's kind of different ways to change behavior. And one one way is to add incentives and to add rules, you know, so that would be like, okay, Ezra, if you if you don't watch a show at dinner, you can stay up till 830. And if you don't watch a show at dinner, you can have a cookie. But if he sees the iPad sitting there, now he's like extra mad because not only is there this, you know, that same temptation to watch the show, but he's he's disappointed that he's not getting this reward. And the way to relieve the tension in the system is to kind of remove the temptation or remove the barrier altogether. So, you know, it doesn't work on the seven-year-old anymore, but for the three-year-old, if you put the iPad out of sight and out of mind, you don't have to worry about these other Thing. So it's like, okay, you're trying to help your kid have good behavior. One option is to add things. Another option is to subtract the barriers to that behavior. And I would say that that's a, a good thing to look at in, in parenting or in, you know, all types of kind of behavior changes. How do you, how do you remove these barriers to the behavior that you actually want? And that's a form of subtracting that actually relieves tension in the system. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. That totally makes sense. So if you're, for instance, finding yourself really addicted to Instagram and every time you open your phone, it's first thing you do. Yes, yes. Take Instagram as an app off your phone. Mm -hmm. And if you really want to go on it, you can do, you can go to Instagram.com and log in that way. Perfect. Yeah. I do that for some, some apps, Twitter off my phone uh, and, you know, look at several times a day. And, you know, again, it's, it's up to you, you know, do it in a moment of clarity, which ones matter <laughs> to you that you actually want to you know, have there on your phone, but just that little removing of temptation can go a long way. And I know there was a part of the study that spoke to how multitasking is detrimental to seeing subtraction opportunities. Can you walk us through that? How does that happen? Yeah, you hit everything. You know, nobody talks about the grilled <laughs> cheese and the multitasking, the, uh, <laughs> and the, but the multitasking is awesome uh, experimentally. So we would give people these things that it was better to subtract from. One of the best illustrations of this, we got had these grid tasks that people could do on a computer screen. And basically the grids were symmetrical from left to right and top to bottom, except for some extraneous marks in one corner. So you could solve this by subtracting those marks, which required just a small number of clicks or by adding marks to three corners. And then we gave people money if they did it in the fewest number of clicks and incentivized that. And people would, you know, do what I did with the bridge and 
add first, add to all three corners and never consider taking away. And then if you told them that, hey, taking away, they'd be like, oh, of course that's better. <laughs> so we had these grids and you asked about the, the multitasking part. We wanted to see for the experiments, you know, the theory here was that this is a, a decision-making shortcut. Our brain's default mode is to think about what we can add first. And if it's our brain's default mode, then you would think the more distracted we are, the more likely we are to like rely on that default mode of thinking. So the, the way we did this was have numbers scrolling across the bottom of the screen. Um, and every time a five went by, people had to push an F on the, the keyboard. And so basically, yeah, it's like you're texting and driving. And when that happened, people became even less likely to subtract. They were more likely to go with this adding default. Um, and so I think, you know, again, the, for the purposes of our science, this showed that it was a kind of default wiring in our brain, but for practical purposes, it shows that the very time you need subtracting the most is when you're overwhelmed is the time that you're less, least likely to use it. Right. So you really need to kind of break the cycle, take a step back, take time to think about how to make things better. And, uh, and then you might, come up with some traction, but it's, uh, it's a, it can be a vicious cycle because you want to keep adding and adding and adding. And the more that you keep adding and adding and adding, the less likely you are to, to think of subtracting. Right. And I heard you talk on a podcast about the value in just being resting, you know, doing a meditation for 30 minutes, as opposed to packing 30 minutes of reading into your day and putting even more information in your brain. How have you seen that work practically in your own life? Yeah, that was one thing that doing this research and writing the book helped with was, you know, I'd be in my previous life, I would run on the treadmill, watch the news and listen to a podcast at the same time. It's like, all right, I'm doing all this efficiently. Yeah, but I'm you. Yeah. <laughs> and it, help, and, me, help me. Again, there may be a time to do that, right? It's I do yeah. listen to podcasts, I do get value from them. But I realized that that like my running time was the time that my brain would just like kind of take a step back. And that's when I would like have deeper thoughts, you know, that's when I would come up with like, okay, this is a good title for the book, or this is a good mm. structure for the chapters, like big, important things. Right. And that's like your creative process. You're giving your, your brain time to be creative. Exactly. Yeah. And so I was like, oh man, I got to stop doing that. And I think, you know, that's one that's especially relevant in today's world. I mean, there's no, you can get really interesting information whenever, wherever you want on whatever you want. So it becomes even more important to kind of give ourselves time to take a step back and, and uh, you know, let our brain do its thing. So when do you need to add versus subtract? Like, How <laughs> do you know if you're in an addition or a subtraction moment? That's a good point. I think as long as you've considered both of them, it's my job is done. <laughs> right. It's like, it's, I love that. That's a good rule. See, that's the good yeah, rule pretty well. because that rule puts it back in your own hands. You're not listening to someone else's wisdom because so much of this show, like I thought that this show was going to be like, I'm going to give tools how to be creative and then people will be creative. What I've really realized this show is and what I think all creativity is, is learning to love yourself, trust yourself, and know yourself enough to think you deserve to even get out there and unleash. That's interesting. Right? Yeah. So what you're giving somebody the ability to do with that and with this whole theory and, and study and consequent books and articles, you're telling people, know yourself well enough and know the situations you're in well enough to know whether or not you need to add or subtract or just stay the same. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's another option. It's another tool in your toolkit. And if you've thought about it for the context that you care about, then that's amazing. So can we talk about one of your biggest subtractions? Because I'm always fascinated by people who reinvent themselves, which you definitely have done. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge thing. You know, you started your career as a soccer player and you're a professional soccer player for years, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, two years. Um, I mean, I was making $2,000 a month. So it was, it was pretty clear that it, it was great, like post-college and I'm doing something I love, but it was also, yeah, it was clear this wasn't going to be a long-term career. But when your identity is wrapped up in that, you know, right. like if you're like, I am a soccer player, this is what I do. This is who I am. It's quite an aggressive move to go from that to something else. So how did you subtract it from that primary position it was in, in your life 
to something I'm do you still do soccer is it le- like less in your life now or tell me about that yeah I mean I don't know if I did it the right way but for me it was just I loved it so much it was just in, like a death I mean I haven't had fortunately like any real close deaths to me but that was that's what it felt like. I mean, it's this thing that I love that isn't there anymore. It can't be there anymore in the way. I mean, because one of the things I loved about it too was the competition and like, you know, master your craft. So you couldn't really replace it by going and playing pickup with people. Um, right. It, was, it wouldn't be the same. So yeah, it just felt like a uh, kind of, hey, this is this thing that was great while it lasted. I'm so thankful to have had it, but now, now it's not there. I mean, I coach my son now but uh it that's that's what it felt like what did you do with that extra space in your life like did you instantly add or did you take time to mourn that subtraction uh I think I I thought of it kind of like okay I've accomplished this thing that I really wanted to do and so I was like I'm kind of retired I'll just like live the rest of my life and like do this engineering job that my undergraduate degree had prepared me for and just enjoy the fact that I you know, kind of accomplished this one goal. And then, you know, that lasted for about a year when you realized that, oh, no, like the fun part of this was the the striving and the trying to get really good at something and to do something that, you know, yeah, everything that comes along with that. So there was that little period of kind of feeling like I was retired from being uh, a creative to, okay, what's next? And then with that, what's next? I started to think that's what the first time in my life I was like, what can I do that actually like helps the world? And I know that soccer helps the world in terms of like providing entertainment, but it was like, okay, I have these, this education, this set of skills, these opportunities that I've been fortunate enough to have by virtue of having good parents and things like that. And um, so it's like, okay, now what can I do to kind of keep pushing myself, but also make an impact? And so then what did you do? So then I um I worked for a while. I thought that I would like my dad's a, a retired professor. Um so I like that was a job that was in my uh in my head as a potential job that people could do and I I thought that I would like doing research cuz the research is a very creative endeavor, right? It's like you're trying to go from the existing state of knowledge to some new state of knowledge. And, uh, and that requires going from the known to the unknown, which is a, a very creative thing. And so I thought that I would like the research piece. And I knew that I would like the teaching. I mean, I love learning and, and working. I mean, college students are amazing to be able to, to work with. It's just such a, a, a great time in their lives. And they're, they're so smart and, um, yeah. and thoughtful. There's so much hope. Yes, it is. It's so much hope. Like the beginning of every semester, I'm like, Oh, this, this is all going to work out just fine. We just need to get like Hanya. That's one of my students, Hanya up into the, <laughs> into the, these decision-making <laughs> roles. Um, so, so that, so I started thinking about, okay, that would be a cool career path. And then I, I worked for a little more, went back for my PhD and then I got my first faculty job and it's a nice, for a creative person, it's a really nice job because, I mean, you know, you're getting a, a salary. You've got to kind of meet the minimum requirements in terms of write this many papers a year or whatever. But if um, in the right situations, you can be pretty confident that you're going to be able to do that. And it gives you a lot of latitude to think about, OK, what should I do? How should I contribute to knowledge? What are the most important problems to work on? And so I've I've really loved this career um, in terms of allowing you to do creative things. You're the first person who's ever said that on my show. I've had other people who had gone for their doctorate and become professors, but I've never heard somebody say it's a great career path for a creative person. Yeah. And I love that. You just opened my mind. It's sad. I mean, I I get there's certainly situations where it's not a great path for creative people. I think one thing that helped me is I worked in the, you know, I worked doing construction engineering for five years. And so I saw the real world and I saw like, well, there's no creativity there, there. And for good reason. I mean, it's like you, you have to build the building the way that they, right. You can't just be like, you know, I think I'm going to do a little something to the foundation. Let's see if we put a crack in there. What happens? I had an idea last night um, that (laughs) (laughs) we need to try out on this, but, uh, and so like, I'm all, I'm comparing it to that. Whereas some people who I think go straight through, they're like, this is their first 
job and then they're like at first it is more restrictive than what they're used to and second they don't know which restrictions aren't really restrictions right so there's like kind of these unwritten rules explain that well it's like um like i'm technically my uh, my background was in civil engineering and my phd was in architectural engineering but the research we've been talking about is is fundamentally like cognitive psychology i mean this has benefited from great collaborators but I think it would be easy to say, okay, I can only do civil engineering research because that's the department that I'm in. I think there might be some people who think that way, but not actually any rules <laughs> against doing what you think is the, the most important thing to be doing. You might have to do a little bit more work to kind of explain how it ties back into the to what the people in your group care about. But I, I so I think that's what I mean by like knowing which rules you have to follow and, and which ones you don't. Yeah. And then of course, once you have tenure, like the tenure is weird because you're not, it's not that you can just stop working and, you know, <laughs> at all. Yeah. Um, but it, it does give you that a- academic freedom. Nobody can say to you, Hey, you're not doing the right thing. As long as you're doing something, it's, it's okay. That's such a great point. And I think too, like, you've opened my mind because I often think that the rules are the rules and there's no way to subtract them myself if they're mm-hmm. put in place. But what you've just illuminated to me is that there are workarounds that could act as a subtraction. <laughs> there's a really cool book on creativity by um, the guy who wrote flow, Mihaly, Skidis Mihaly. He just passed okay. away. He's like a flow is this like psychology of optimal experience. So that's like in a soccer game when, 20 minutes go by and I'm sitting there like, what, where did that time just go? But it also happens in creative pursuits. Right. Um, right. And it's like, you're, you're concentrating intensely on something. So he, he spent his whole career studying this, but, and he's got a book called flow, but he's also got a book called creativity. And it's basically these case studies of all these creatives from like composers to scholars. And that really gave me if I'm remembering where, which book I got it from, it seems to me that those like vignettes of the people who had done this and who I really respected, so many of them were just like, just ignored (laughs) rules, right? It's like, you know, so-and-so, I remember one of the stories and there's this like Stanford professor, he just went for a three-hour walk along the coast every day. And that was like part of his work day. And it was like, everybody just accepted it. Right. And it's, I'm sure, you know, the new professor coming in feel would feel really weird doing that, but it gave me a little bit of like, Oh, look, look at these people who have been super successful. have have done, done it a little bit by, by ignoring the the rules that aren't serving their creativity. Yeah. I'm also curious, how do you find creativity? Because you have a job that a lot of people from the outside looking in, like people who don't listen to this show, but um, <laughs> would think that, well, maybe that's not a traditionally creative profession, you know, but you've approached it in an incredibly creative way. So for those who are in more quote unquote traditional professions, how do you define creativity and how do you think it can apply to them? Um, this is also my definition for design, I guess, but it's like taking things from the way they are to the way that you want them to be. And there is this, um, Herbert Simon, he's a Nobel Prize winning, like in, in economics, but um, he he had this definition. He, he said that, that that was the thing that unified all the professions, right? Like a doctor's doing that. You're taking, trying to change something, the patient from the way they are to the, to the way you want them to be, which is better. And a lawyer's doing that and a, yep. an engineer is doing that. And there's a tremendous amount of creativity there, right? I mean, the sure there's science that you have to draw on but it's it's all about figuring out which science is relevant and creating this end state that doesn't yet exist so i i have this very broad definition of of creativity and but i think it's something that all of us can can practice yeah i totally agree i mean i think it's creating something from nothing seeing something that's not there and then making it come to light yeah and that's why i mean there are studies on this i'm sure you've heard but when kids are young, like before they learn that there is a consequence to being wrong, they score like genius level creative, like 90 something yeah. percent. And then they take that same group of kids. This was a study they did about five or six years later. And it was the exact opposite. It was like two or three percent scored genius level and the rest scored not very creative or barely creative. And yeah. it's really it's about learning there's a consequence to being wrong. And so I think creativity comes from the risk you take 
that you might be wrong, but it also might be fun. And you might just change the world and contribute to knowledge, yes. as you said. <laughs> or, yeah, or create something new. Yeah, yeah. Or at least you tried and did something different and you were still creative. And, yeah, I I love what you've proposed. I, I do have another question, though. So the thing about worthiness, you know, or wanting to seem competent, if that's super tied up in how much you're doing, how much you're producing, the amount of things you add. How do you get to a place where it's not affecting you and inhibiting you from subtracting? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I, I'm not going to pretend like that's easy. And I, mean, I just gave these examples like those, the guy taking walks along the coast at, at Stanford had already achieved these amazing things. And then so everybody's just like, oh, that's the genius guy taking walks. And it, it's different when you're starting out and there's no kind of like evidence to to show your your worthiness. I, I'd go back to that, like have a really clear vision of what this is going to look like or what this potentially could look like if you, mm-hmm. if you did it. Um, and I would maybe even double down on the subtracting. I think we talked about it being harder to notice things that we've taken away, right? If so, if so, if, you know, Lauren, if you remove one thing from the background of your, of your zoom screen, I'm not going to notice that one thing is missing, but if you remove everything, I might be like, oh, look, that's like she had a really modern like design to her her Zoom room. Uh, and so you can make subtraction noticeable if you do enough of it, right? And um, yeah. so, and then I'll give one more example just from my walk of life. It's like one of the kind of easy metrics to go with is like, oh, how many papers did you write in this last year? And it it's so easy to say, okay, this person wrote 10, this person wrote 12, and it says nothing about the quality of them. But if you have one paper and it's a damn good paper and, you know, then you can, and I mean, it's, again, it's got, you're going to have to think about how do you like explain to people why this is an amazing contribution and, and, and actually have it be an amazing contribution. But if you get off that like rat race of producing 10 things and produce one really good thing, I think there's, it's going to stand out because it's good, but it's also going to stand out because people are like, wait, what? Lighty only wrote one paper. We know he was like a pretty hard worker and this must be a good paper. So I would think about, you know, maybe like even subtracting more. That's the music example. Do you like Bruce Springsteen? I know. uh, Love him. I mean, I love Billy. I know people like put them against each other. I'm more of a Billy Joel person, but I'm obsessed with Bruce Springsteen. I think he's incredible. He's a, yeah. I think even if you don't like his music, it's just like, you've got to respect the fact that like this guy clearly loves what he does and he's clearly in it for the the craft, right? He doesn't need more money and he's like, yeah, it's amazing. I hope I'm like him when I'm 72, I guess, but, um, (laughs) he has his darkness on the edge of talent album. And that was like his most, if you like the true Bruce Springsteen fans will be like, Oh, darkness is the best album because it's, it's so stripped down. And he took away like all of the, um, the instrumentals, not all of the instrumentals, but a lot of the instrumentals, the lyrics, the number of words per song in that album are, are really stripped down. And it was just noticeably different than, you know, kind of the other music that was out there at the time. And also from his, his albums and it wasn't like it wasn't this subtraction that nobody notices where it was this like holy cow this is different Um, and then it became clear that like a lot of effort went into that and uh he was able to kind of show his worthiness um with that with that massive amount of subtraction yeah i i definitely related to the music parts you had because with my first batch of songs that i put out 
There was this one song. I actually did a whole podcast like showing how it changed from the first voice note I sang to when it came out. Oh, neat. But I went through the chorus and I was putting so many words in. I was like, it would be really good if I could put more words in the chorus. <laughs> and it wasn't. It was, it was like I was trying to like instead of just singing. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I related to that because I literally went through and took out words, replaced some, but did a lot of subtractions first before putting in new ones. So I think that's a great point for anybody who's going through the edit process of their creativity. It is difficult and it's painful when you put a lot into it, but uh, it makes a better song and sometimes it's easier to sing too. <laughs> well, that's just such a beautiful example too, because you shared it, right? And so if it's somebody who's like trying to be creative in their organization and they're scared of that, like not doing that subtracting is going to make them look lazy or like they didn't put in the effort. Well, if you can share, look, I got here, I got to the point that everybody else is at with all this stuff. And then I did more to take away. Um, that's, a, that's one way to kind of show that you put in the effort and show that it was more work and, you know, show the worthiness, but also give people this finished product that is, perfectly polished and stripped down. Yeah. And it makes me think too, that through this subtraction process, you're actually requiring the people in your life to be better too, because the type of person who would think that you writing 12 papers instead of this one paper that got you on the cover is better. Yeah. Isn't the kind of person you want in your life. Isn't the kind of person you want like as a mentor or a leader in your organization, like you are going to require a higher level of humanity from the people around you if you're requiring the subtraction in every area. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's also like you're, you're leading by example, right? Yeah. Um, so if you do that, then you're making it okay for somebody else to do that. Um, and, you know, so you're kind of breaking this trend of, hey, just see who can pile on the most shit and see like, you know, what makes the bean, bean counters happy. So um, <laughs> I, and I also, there's another human dimension there right what I guess we touched on a little earlier but it's like the, the notion that you're also like letting them be involved more right so yeah. like the if somebody's listening to your music they're filling up that space that's in there with their thoughts and their you know kind of spin on on what's going on and if it's if it's writing I mean Hemingway has the the theory of omission which is that like the less that he could put in his stories the more it allowed the reader's imagination to go and there was no way anybody could write something better than the reader's imagination. Right. Um, and so it's like, you're, you're respecting your audience more too, when you kind of strip things down. That's true. And I think it's why I'm obsessed with audio, which we use these videos for clips, mm -hmm. but I'm obsessed with audio because it's one of the best creative collaborations with an audience because they don't know what you look like they don't know where you're sitting they oh, don't know yeah. they have to fill in all the blanks they don't know if I'm leaning in when I talk to you or if I'm sitting there's she was just leaning in I was <laughs> gave me away lighting <laughs> sorry. um but no it's it's an amazing art form because of that and I um I never thought of it. It is because you're subtracting the visual medium you're allowing the person listening to co-create with you yeah, that's fascinating. It also like what made me think before, um, I loved your point earlier about kind of the authenticity, right? Like not packaging up, here's the seven ways to do this thing, right? Here's the, here's the three ways to be creative, follow Lauren's steps and you will do it. And it's like, that's not true. That's not how it works. It's like, give people the information and let them, yeah. you know, let them use their skills on it. And, uh, but that's still like the opposite, like the the mainstream media wants it in that format, right? If I like write an op-ed, they're like, can you just like put what this is about in the first sentence? <laughs> like, yeah. Like any yeah. TV show you go on, you're going to have to do the five things, yeah. which, okay, fine. Like maybe you have to do that for now, but it's leading you to do the deeper things that you want to do. Yeah. And I guess that just sucks. But but the more people, like you said, so this is another great point and something I definitely want to touch on. You said part of why we're probably not subtracting as much as we could is just because we don't see examples of it. We're all so chronically used to adding and we see other people adding. So we're like, okay, so if I just add, I'm going to be okay. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be all right. Like I'm a good person if I just keep adding, yeah. you know? And so the more we see people subtracting and stripping down and getting to the truth of something or the truth for them, 
the more likely we are to do it. So I think, yeah, it's like, yeah, you're going to have to do those like five top things to subtract in your life for now. <laughs> but the more deep conversations you're having, like the podcasts you've done and these amazing articles you've written that don't force you to do the five top things, you know, you're going to be encouraging other people to do the same and creating more opportunities for yourself. So one hand washes the other. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the disadvantage there is like that the subtracting is, uh, is not visible sometimes. So when we subtract also like making it visible, that's what I love also about your example of doing the editing live, right? Here's the first version of what I did. And um, I really like watching stand-up comedy. And I don't know, for like the first 20 years of my interest in stand-up comedy, I would just watch like the, the Netflix or Amazon or HBO specials. And you're like, wow, these people are amazing. They can just riff for 50 minutes. And then you realize that it's like, no, that one minute they workshopped for like, you know, a whole year in front of live audiences. And it was horrible the way they first did it. And this is where they got to. And so if people could, could see that. Um, but the point being that when you get to the finished product, all the stuff that's been taken away is by definition invisible. So you've got to make a conscious effort to, mm. to share that because a huge way that we learn is by seeing what's in our surroundings and the subtractions by definition have been taken away from our surroundings. Yeah, it's so true because the reason I did share that, even though like part of it was embarrassing, like when I showed my dad the first part when I sang, he laughed at me and we got in a huge fight, you know? So like it wasn't, Sorry. it didn't necessarily like, paint me in the best light as a songwriter or as a singer, but right. I wanted people to see that like you can start out being shitty and end up being good enough to, to share with the world. I think so many of us give up because of the messy middle of something because it feels so it feels so good when you first start something and then you get to this point in the middle where it gets so mucky and bad that it would be a lot easier to like completely subtract the whole thing than just subtract a few things from the thing and finish the thing. And meanwhile, you're comparing yourself to everybody's finished product, right? And so it's like right. I, I realized with my students, I would like give them papers right and they, they have to do this dissertation to get a phd and it's like no i should give them the first draft of my dissertation because then at least they'll take the first step and like the first draft of my dissertation was horrible they all are um and you know so it's like um but you know what we tend to see is like this finished product that leads us to think that oh we we're not as good as that person because they just kind of spit out this brilliant thing it's like no they did that after 20 iterations on the on the on the writing and and the thinking and the, the studying yeah I think that brings up a good point too of subtracting the right things mm. it's like don't subtract the the whole dissertation just because you're not as good as what Lighty's final dissertation was right right yeah subtract the parts of your first draft that don't work right Exactly. Are you getting the therapy that you wanted? I want to make sure that, um, yeah, <laughs> that was the problem. I don't know if you fixed me, but I think it was a very vital step. Vital step. Um, I think I, yeah, I took a vital step today. I think the, the hard thing is consistency for me. So oh, I guess, yeah. okay, let's, let's wrap it on this. What can we do to be consistent with our subtractions? Are there any tools you can offer to do consistent I was going to say contractions to do consistent subtractions from your life. I mean, the best one is to bake it into your process, right? It's like figure out where you're making decisions about adding and subtracting and make it part of your creative process. And so, you know, again, back to the to do's and stop doings, um, new ideas, but also are you subtracting old ideas? We haven't talked much about this, but like our mental models, mm. the way we build knowledge is called knowledge construction, right? And it's like, you just stack crap on top of the stuff that's in there. And it's really hard to change your mental models. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is, is my son. And he, you know, believes he's a Santa Claus believer and uh, he, Santa Claus brought him Legos and they're like plastic in the Lego container. And he's looking at me like, what the hell? Like, this is, this is, this. and I'm, I said, what's wrong? He, he said, how'd Santa bring me Legos? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, Santa, he just has like the elves and the wood and there's not, uh, how does he know how to Oh my God, your son is me. I used to say that all the time. How did he make, yeah. how did he make a Barbie? <laughs> it's so funny. He can't make 
a Barbie. <laughs> yeah. I've never heard of any other kids saying that. Yeah. Well, you're in, you're in, uh, Ezra's in good company with you. Um, <laughs> I feel the same. Right. It's like, they're so smart to know that it's like, well, yeah, of course they, how could he do that at a workshop in the North Pole? But then, so I thought really quickly and I was just like, oh, well for, yeah, for Legos and stuff, Santa just works directly with Amazon and they have this agreement and Ezra was like, all right, good work sold because it didn't force him to subtract like he had this you have this existing knowledge and when you get new information that kind that even when it conflicts with the existing knowledge it's it's much easier to just kind of adapt both so that you can keep what you already know and so again like spending time uh to think about okay here are things that you know my mental models are built upon that i need to that maybe aren't serving me well or, or aren't uh, aren't as important as some of the, the other concepts in my mental models and like one for me there i i never had this idea that like the america was this perfect you know meritocracy but certainly like post george floyd and all the great work that people have done since then kind of helping people rethink the way things are, you can help subtract this notion of, you know, equality or the fact that it's like, oh yeah, like it's not perfectly equal, but everybody basically has a, a fair shake. Um, and also having kids helps you see that too, because you see the other kids and you're like, oh my goodness, like that poor guy has very little chance based on the situation that he's, he's in. So, um, so yeah, think like baking it into your process with ideas and then like creating, you know, and physical things too, right? So, you know, if you bring something new into your life, something has to go out if you want to not have your house be packed with stuff. So <laughs> bake it into your process, I think is the main thing. So where are the categories in our lives we should be looking at? Like, are there main categories to subtract? Yeah. I mean, we worked really hard in the research to cover ideas, objects, um, and like mm. situations basically. So, uh, physical things, uh, the social like meetings and, you know, the, the way your day is organized basically. And then, um, and then ideas, those are the, the categories that I would, I would think about it across, but also it's like, you know, if you're a creative and like you work in, a specific medium if you work in clay there's a theory that the people who work with clay might be better subtractors because they spend their whole life like kind of carving away from stuff but um yeah like you could think about it just in in terms of the medium that you care about too okay and we did touch on this but you can use your income to save your schedule oh, yeah. and you pr you propose that as a way of subtracting um, and you said something so interesting that people who engaged in this on some level were happier regardless of their wealth. Yeah. You call it investing in stop doings. Can you give some examples of these investments and a few examples in particular that many or most people listening could probably engage with? Yeah. I mean, so the research is done by Liz Dunn and Ashley Willens and some other people. And there's and there's like a, a whole line of research on this. So pretty robust findings that, you know, spending money to save time makes people happier. And your first thought is like, oh, well, that's because these people are rich, right? They're the millionaires who can spend money to hire a nanny. And of course, they're going to be happy. But they did controlled experiments where they would give money to people. And even people who didn't have a lot of money, if they spent money to, to save time would become happier. So it's like, everything from hiring somebody to clean up your house to, um, you know, getting a, getting a producer, if that's part of your job that, that you don't love, and it's going to save you time. Um, so you can kind of do a ballpark estimate of what you value your time at, and then think about, okay, if it makes sense to, to take away some of these other things that, you know, aren't, aren't bringing you joy. Uh, one of the ones that's been really helpful for me um, is especially when you've got kids, I mean, it's like a once in a lifetime time, right? I don't like yeah. if I'm missing time with Ezra, that's uh, worth a lot. And so um, the reason it ties into subtraction a little like, so we've, we've talked about this all along is like how hard it is to subtract something, how hard it is for Lauren to stop doing something that she's currently doing. And what we're proposing here is not just to stop doing something, but to actually pay to stop doing something. And so it's, again, it's, it's a, a hard obstacle to overcome, but when you do it, it's, um, it can really be life-changing. Well, I feel like this conversation and this uh, theory, not theory, what would we call this? Is it a way of living? I think it's a good, I think theory is good. Okay. Um, 
subtraction yeah. theory? Sure. Yeah. Marin's theory of subtraction. Yeah. Yes. Subtraction theory is something that has been pretty life-changing for me, and I can't wait to see how it goes and to really do my best to be consistent with it. And you're such a wonderful human. Like, I'm so glad you're teaching the youth. <laughs> it's a great job. And you're raising some youth, too. I mean, it's it's been a true pleasure to get to know you and talk with you today. This has been super inspirational for me, but I know it will be for the listeners, too. So thank you for being here, Lighty. Yeah, thank you, Lauren. And you're a wonderful human, too. And I so appreciate the uh, the challenge of sharing information with people who can use it and your contribution to that. And so um, it really means a lot to me to have your uh, have your skill in sharing these ideas. Oh, thank you. Well, you've helped me unleash today. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for listening. And thanks to my guest, Dr. Lighty Klotz. For more info on Lighty, follow him at Lighty Klotz on Twitter. That's at L-E-I-D-Y-K-L-O-T-Z on Twitter. You can also purchase his book, Subtract, the Untapped Science of Less on Amazon or wherever you get your books. Thanks so much to Unleashed producer Emily Shulmanovich. You can follow her at We Can't Find Emily. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. My wish for you this week is that you do less. If you're doing the most, do the least, baby. Really consider the pressure points in your life and how or what you can do to subtract. You never know what that space could allow. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.